Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Opposing Points podcast. My guest today is Dan Kavalik, human rights and labor lawyer, peace activist, and educator at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the author of the book, Cancel This Book, which we'll be discussing today, as well as several others, including No More War and the Plot to Scapegoat Russia. Dan and I largely talk about his book, Cancel This Book, and some of the issues talked about in it, such as Russiagate, transphobia, and the two-party system. If you enjoy this video, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Hey, Dan, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, David? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, so I brought you on because I, I read your book, uh, Cancel This Book. Um, I know you've had newer ones since then, but um, that was my first uh, foray and I really enjoyed it. Um, I know you come from the, the progressive side. I'm more towards the conservative libertarian side. And I found myself just, yes, yes, to almost everything I read in the book, um, which if you look at the kind of discourse today, people would probably be shocked to see that. So I was just wanting to get your commentary or thoughts around that, like the discourse going on in this country right now, how you're seeing it. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, my parents are very conservative. You know, they 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 voted for Trump. They listen to Tucker Carlson every day. And we've certainly had our political disagreements, though. It's very interesting. As time goes on, we seem to find more things to agree on. And, you know, my whole goal is to try to find common ground with people. You know, I'm not looking to disagree with people. I'm looking to agree with them, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, part of it is my personality, but it's also, you know, I'm a political activist and I think that's what political activists should do. Um, and, and I guess what concerns me about cancel culture and why I wrote the book is that I see more and more people are doing the opposite. They're trying to find ways to exclude others mm -hmm. and to put them on the outside. And that is disturbing to me. Um, and so we find ourselves in a situation in this country where politically people are talking to each other less and less, even if they agree on 98% of things, but they decide the 2% they disagree on is enough to shun somebody. And um, to me, that isn't the way to move forward. Yes. Um, so uh, I'm not single any longer, but when I was in your city and single, even it's permeating, you know, dating apps and it's, it's, it's so pervasive in the culture um, that these things never used to matter. You see kind of couples today in 2016, they just, broke up over Donald Trump, but they had known they had opposing views kind of for so long, but that, that was the catalyst. Yeah, well, I have to say that uh, I'm in the process of, of divorcing right now, and the, the book itself, the cancel culture book I wrote, uh, was a big thing that led to the breakup. I mean, I don't want to totally blame that. Obviously, there's other things and other right. things I have to take responsibility for in the relationship but but over time those political issues between us even though we again agree on most things and come from the same political orientation the things we disagreed about 
uh, as discussed in the book, but also because I wrote the book, became a huge issue and probably was the straw that broke the camel's back. So yeah, that's an incredible thing that, that marriages and relationships can break up over those things. Um, but it shows how, how uh, you know, emotional those things have become in our lives. Yeah, <clears throat> very, very much so. Um, and it's kind of a timely time to talk to you because today uh, Ilya Shapiro tendered his resignation. I don't know if you saw that. But in, sp in spite of his um, kind of being reinstated, he um, tendered his resignation because of how broad the uh, the, the contents of the, of the letter were that we're talking about his reinstatement. And he basically felt that if he even had a conversation that brought people on to defend against um, a, a position that's not necessarily favored, but that would give the law students practice that he would be um, you know, accused of, of fostering these types of conversations. Like we have a whole class of law students that didn't want Harvey Weinstein as a horrible person he is to have representation and they were chastising their firms. And you're, you're also a teacher still, correct? I am, I teach. So I'm curious how, how that's evolved in your view um, with your students over the years. Well, it's interesting. I mean, for the most part, my students, I have found to be receptive to ideas and to be um, you know, to whether they agree with me or not, at least to accept that I teach a certain point of view. But, you know, I did have an incident last year uh, that was interesting. And I do see it as a time, uh, sign of the times. I, I teach um, international human rights. And one of the things I teach is the US war on Vietnam because very few people know much about it, right? Especially now, at least when I was growing up, there were a lot of movies about it and all, you know, so you at least knew something about what was happening there. Now, now it's pretty much a thing of the past. Anyway, one of the things I teach about uh, is the racism that infected the US war, you know, that soldiers, US soldiers weren't even taught that they were fighting Vietnamese. They instead, uh, during the training, racist terms were used to describe the Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was something called the mere gook rule, which meant if you saw an Asian person in theater, whether they were a child or an elderly person, you were allowed to consider them an enemy and kill them. Okay. And so I, I've taught this for a number of years, and I think it's important. Uh, especially in the context of discussing whether it's a genocide when you consider that any person of a certain ethnicity in theater is fair game to be killed, that you may have a, you know, a genocide problem. Anyway, um, I taught that. And then, what, you know, within a week or so, I got a call from the diversity dean um, saying we needed to talk and that someone had complained because I had use this term gook and you know in the mere gook rule you know that this was racist and I said well yeah it is racist but I wasn't endorsing the word I was being very critical of it you know to show right how bad this war was and ultimately you know I didn't get in trouble except that yeah I had I got a talking to you know mm -hmm. and this is something new that a student would complain about this when obviously 
I wasn't endorsing the racist term. Obviously, I was using it in a way that was important to the discussion in the class. I was quoting it from different sources. I didn't make up the term, you know, and yet someone complained. Uh, and I think so what this is a new thing. And I, I suspect I'm going to see this more that people honestly don't even have the maturity to understand the difference between, uh, you know, citing a term like that in a critical way and using the term uh, against someone, right? That they don't see the difference in that. And we see this often, right? We see people getting fired. Yeah. There was a guy at the New York Times, I forget his name, who had been there a long time. He ends up losing his job at the New York Times for a similar thing, that he was discussing the N-word with someone, not even at work, on some other occasion. Again, as a discussion about it, and I think in response to a question someone asked, and he just you know, talked about it. He didn't call someone the name. He didn't, mm -hmm. again, endorse it. But he lost his job. And so we see more and more that there's these bright lines that have been cast uh, where certain language can't even be uttered. It's like Voldemort, right? And Harry Potter, the, the one whose name shall not be said or whatever. Yeah. You know, these words have powers over us in a way that they never have. Uh, and where, yeah, you have to be careful about talking about anything really you know because and again in a human rights class you have to talk about uh especially when you go over genocide which is an important part of human rights law right of course you have to talk about these racial terms which many times are are looked at to find that there was a genocide that these terms were being used by the people being accused of genocide right and so what am i supposed to do pretend that those things weren't said or you know it, it's just very strange it puts professors in a box where you can't even teach your field of study mm -hmm. and how is this a good thing and, and, it, and it infantilizes the students you know these are mm -hmm. law school students i teach they're graduate level students they should be able to be discerning and in, in how language is used, et cetera. But anyway, I think more and more this is going to be a problem. I agree. When I was um, when I was an RA, this was back in like 2012, a resident assistant, we had a my first introduction into uh, microaggressions. And uh, they were also we also were brought to a, a sexual kind of lecturer who basically spent the entire time saying that men were rapists and rape culture and all this. And a guy in the back, he happened to raise his hand and express concerns about the timing between when, you know, rape can be accused. And I watched everyone in the room just target on his back and meet like it was a mob. It was absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like it, like discussions that should be had before you, you know, castigate a group, an entire group of people or a, a gender, whatever, as you know, rapists walking around. It's, it's just, it, it was insane. It was the first time I've kind of seen that in, in university. And then uh, the year after I graduated was when Trump, Trump won and I was visiting and it was, it was absolute madness. You'd think that they had never 
encountered any sort of adversity throughout their entire life until that day, which is possible. Um, but um, it was just it was just kind of madness to see. And so I have this conversation with um, one of my more liberal friends. Um, and one of one of the things that he likes to say is that, you know, cancel culture is a problem, but it is not the prevailing culture in America over tolerance and discourse. Do you agree with that sentiment or is the is cancel culture, even though it's a minority, the prevailing culture because of the kind of silencing effects it has? I think it certainly can operate in that way, particularly over certain topics. I mean, I think there are now topics that are almost totally verboten. Uh, I think one of the big ones is to debate the issue of, of uh, trans people in sports, for example, mm -hmm. which is, a, you know, at, at one point seemed like a merely theoretical issue. But now we see that there's these real instances where reality has asserted itself, right? We see yeah. this University of Pennsylvania swimmer. Um, who was a man who identified as a woman like a year before going from being a male swimmer to a female swimmer, won the 500 meter uh, race and I guess set a record, a collegiate record for this. Uh, apparently, uh, the young women on his team uh, would sometimes cry during the meets over this sort of thing, felt uncomfortable seeing his or her private parts in the shower mm -hmm. because um, this individual had not gotten any surgery at all to try to become a woman. So still had the male parts and in the young women by and large, were not comfortable with this in the locker room. Um, and I think what this raises is an important question. However you come out on the issue, I think one has to honestly acknowledge we have a balancing of interest problem here, right? Mm -hmm. You have all these young women and their parents who were upset by this, who feel cheated by this, versus the feelings of this trans women. And I think one has to say, well, whose feelings are more important, right? And do we look at the numbers of people affected, you know, the one person versus the many? We have to ask those questions. This is going to, you know, this is obviously going to become a bigger issue, mm -hmm. right? Uh, similarly, women, uh, trans women in prison, right? I just read something about uh, a prisoner, a woman prisoner, she happened to be Black, by the way, complaining about trans women in prison. And similar things, you know, a lot of women, I think a huge percent statistically of women in prison have been sexually abused over there. And there was a, I think there was a pregnancy, a couple of pregnancies from the same uh, trans inmate in, in another, I don't know if it was the same prison, but that you're talking about, but there, that, that did happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so the woman's saying, look, a lot of us who've been sexually abused, we don't want to go in the shower with another inmate that has a penis. Mm -hmm. This is not comfy, you know, this triggers us. Okay. And again, one has to say, okay, we have a problem here. We have all these women who feel triggered by this, including black women, by the way, you know, which is important, right? Because the people who advocate 
for trans people also tend to be anti-racist, which is great. You should be against racism, right? But so why is this black woman's concerns less important than the concerns of, of the trans prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. But the way I'm talking to you about this issue right now could get me canceled merely because I'm raising the questions. Right. I'm merely because I'm acknowledging there's a serious issue here that society needs to discuss and needs to find a way of resolving in a way that best protects everyone's interest, everyone's safety, everyone's feelings, right? Um, but this is not a matter of debate in this society. Mm -hmm. One will be canceled for merely questioning the things that I'm questioning. And why is that? How could that be so? How could it be that a relatively new civil rights issue, if you want to call it that, the trans civil rights issue, which most people had never heard of five years ago, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Why has that now become an issue that trumps so many other things, particularly women's rights? And it does at times, right? The other issue that people like J.K. Rowling have raised, and she's been vilified. Oh, yeah. Death threats, rape threats, is why can't I, in certain contexts, not use the word woman or girl, right? So I'll give an example of this where, where I've seen it, and I found it to be strange. And again, this is where my wife and I totally disagreed on, which, and I was surprised. Um, you know, we, the, I, we were watching a show once and there was a drug commercial that came on and it said this drug may not be appropriate for individuals designated female at birth. Oh, I know it. I know it commercially. Is it the, um, the HIV prevention medication? Right. Yeah, I know right. it's commercial. I saw, thought the same thing as you. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm sitting here in bed and I'm with my wife watching and I'm like, uh, don't we have a name for those people? I mean, I thought they were girls, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or women, right? And, I, and that's J.K. Rowling. That, that's right from her, you know, notebook. That's what she would say. Like, don't we have a name for these people? Mm -hmm. um, and my wife got really mad and, at me. And it's like, she has been a feminist her whole life. Uh, in the past, if I had said something like that, if I had called a woman a menstruator or a person with a cervix, she would have slapped me, right? But now she's the one endorsing this language that is erasing the term women. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she has a midwife center that she runs called the Pittsburgh, the Midwife Center for uh, Women's and Reproductive Health. I believe that's the full name. And, the, and they have had serious discussions whether they're going to take the women's health name out of it in deference to trans yeah. people. And again, it's like, you're gonna just take the word woman out. You know, women represent something like 51% of the population. Uh, we're just gonna pretend they don't exist. And of course, a lot of women feminists that I know point out that this erasure seems to be focused mostly on women not on men right there are trans men as well right and but somehow women get screwed again right they're the ones whose name is now being erased 
They're the ones whose sports are being affected. They're the ones whose prisons are being affected. Um, and we're just supposed to not care. And feminists are not is supposed to care, right? And um, again, this is something actually I don't get into the book a lot, only in a footnote. And I'll be yeah. honest, because I really, I thought I dealt with so many issues. I thought this, you know, how much flack do I want to take? And obviously I'm taking a lot of time to talk about this issue with you, but I am because I'm seeing it as this issue is an example of an issue that literally you cannot have an honest discussion about. Yes. And what has happened to that sort of countercultural liberalism that was radical, say what you want, freedom, anti-war and you know, now we're saying men can be women, women can be men. We're tearing down statues of abolitionists. Like what, what has happened? If like, where do people like you and, you know, Bill Maher or Glenn Greenwald or Tulsi Gabbard, where do they fit into this? I, I feel like the, the two party paradigm doesn't fit a lot of people. Um, it's not like, it's not like you're going to vote for Donald Trump and right. <laughs> you know, what happens? Well, it's a big question. Um, not only does the two-party paradigm not work for us or, or a lot of people, but the very left-right divide is making less sense or it's breaking down. You mentioned a Tulsi Gabbard, for example, who's someone I admire quite a bit and like quite a bit. Um, and she's very anti-war and she's an anti-war Democrat, at least for now. We'll see because she did address the uh, conservative. The CPAC, yeah. The CPAC. So I don't know if she's going to move over, but she finds herself more and more isolated amongst liberals for a couple reasons. One, I think on the trans issue, but also on the peace issue, because liberals, I think, are becoming more pro-war. And, and there's a larger conservative strain that's becoming anti-war. So there there's a flip happening there, right? And so you saw with the $40 billion that was approved to go to Ukraine, no Democrats in the Senate voted against that. 11 Republicans did vote against it, right? Still not a majority, but something. It's something. It's more than the, yeah. it's, uh, you know, 11 out of what, 24 or something? So yeah, almost yeah. half of the Republicans in the Senate and uh, no Democrats. So to me, there is a bit of a sea change there, um, which I find disturbing on the one hand, because I think liberals that, you know, should be anti-war. But at the same time, I'm not disturbed to work with a conservative or talk to a conservative about anti-war issues. That is, I'm happy there were 11 senators, whether they were conservative or not, who voted against it. And I would be willing to, you know, uh, reach to people across the aisle to advocate against war because I'm anti-war. It doesn't make a difference to me uh, that you're a conservative or what. If we agree on that issue, we can work together. And in fact, I find not only on the cancel culture book, but on, even on my anti-war books, that I get as much or more invites to conservative talk shows as I do to liberal. In fact, I think probably I got many more conservative, you know, invites to conservative talk shows to talk about 
my view on the war in Ukraine than I did from liberals. Uh, you know, in which I talk about the U.S.'s role in provoking mm -hmm. Russia, NATO's role. Conservatives were more interested in hearing me about that than liberals. And I got on Tucker Carlson. I don't know if you know that. I was, I was yeah. on Tucker Carlson for an hour. Mm -hmm. And I lost a lot of people on that. People were very angry at me that I would go on Tucker Carlson and talk about that issue. And, you know, my defense, not that I felt I needed to defend myself, but I would say, hey, look, here's a guy that has 3.21 million viewers. He has more viewers than any other news person of his kind in America. Why would I not go on his show? Even though I disagree on other issues with, him. and I do, right? I said, if Rachel Maddow invited me, I would have gone, but she would never invite me because she has been you know, uh, pounding the anti-Russia beat for years. She has helped get us where we're at here, right? Her, her propaganda has helped get us to where we are now with Russia. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that. But even, if, even though I disagree with that, I would go on her show. But she'd never invite me. CNN would never invite exactly. me. Exactly. And then you get so pigeonholed because no one America, else is inviting you. Yeah. On <laughs> mainstream media who invited me down to Florida to talk to him for an hour. He didn't try to censor me. He didn't try to bait me. He let me talk for an hour about things I believed in. Why wouldn't I do that? And therefore be able to address millions of Americans on this issue. Do I not want to be effective? You know, do I just not want to reach people? And by the way, I don't know if you know this, there was a poll in October that showed that a majority of Tucker Carlson's viewers are Democrats. I did not see that, but that also does not surprise me. <laughs> so it's not even that, first of all, I'd be happy to talk to just conservatives, but you couldn't even accuse me of doing that because most of the people I was talking to were Democrats. So why wouldn't I do this, right? Uh, but that's where we're at, that, um, you know, you're guilty by association. Um, again, to the point where, again, if people had their way, if I listened to people, including some of my friends, I just wouldn't be effective at all. I'd have no voice at all. I'd be relegated to the margins of society in terms of the things I want to talk about. And I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm not going to do that to myself. I agree with that. That's like, if, if you can, if, if he's the only one that's having you on, it's not your problem. It's the media's problem. It's the media's problem. And I give him credit. That's the other thing. You can give the devil his due. If you think he's the devil, you still give him his due. Hey, the, I even uh, joked. I said, hey, if Satan himself wants to interview me, he's got 3 million viewers and he invites <laughs> me to hell. As long as he gives me a round trip ticket, hey, I'll do it. You know, whatever, man. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> why not? Like, we're adults. And, and the, the, the other example I give, and I cite this all the time, is Noam Chomsky, he used to always say, he said, there was one guy in the mainstream media, one guy who gave him airtime in the mainstream media. Do you know who that was? William F. Buckley. Mm, yes. On Crossfire. And so do you think he went on Crossfire? You bet he did. Was he grateful? You bet he was. Did he respect William F. Buckley for that? He did. Did he like everything that William F. Buckley said and stood for? Absolutely not. 
But that's not what discourse is about or debate. It's not what democracy is about. You want to have a democratic society, people with different views have to talk to each other. Of course. And they have to try to convince each other through reason and logic. Otherwise, they're going to try to do so through violence, right? So we should welcome vigorous discussion. And this made me think, by the way, when I was on Tucker, when I was thinking about Chomsky and William F. Buckley on Crossfire, which was a debate type format. And then you had also on PBS for a long time. I don't know if it exists anymore. I don't think so. It was a point counterpoint, or maybe that was on 60 Minutes at the end of 60 Minutes. Mm. Anyway, you would have these debate formats that were pretty typical uh, in news type shows. You don't really see that anymore. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, now you have people who go on one individual who pretty much spouts their views for a few hours, right? And they rarely have people from the other side come on. Uh, and debate them like mm-hmm. debate is not part of what we do anymore and i find that very disturbing you know um and that's why i do admire tucker carlson to the extent that he does have people with different viewpoints on and he has a lot of my friends on by the way mm-hmm. uh, from the gray zone um he's had uh my friend dakota Lilly on to talk about venezuela he's had uh, I think he had Abby Martin on as well. Anyway, um, you know, we need to see more of that. And again, I wish Rachel Maddow would have anti-war people on her show. I wish uh, CNN would do that, but I don't see that anymore. You know, and in fact, it's interesting. I'll just tell you, a good friend of mine, Brian Becker, he, he's, well, he, I don't know how well-known he is now, but at one time he's a very well-known peace activist and up to the run-up to the war against Iraq in 2002, 2003, he was going on CNN. Right. They would invite him on to talk about his views on the uh, you know, impending war. And he was obviously against it. Mm-hmm. But he's, his story, he told me personally, he said, the day the U.S. started bombing Iraq, he was never invited to CNN again. Never, ever, you know. And so something happened there where they cut that ability to, to discuss those issues and have debate totally out of their show. And so you're really left with so few people on the anti-war issue who have any voice. Again, Tulsi's one of them. And God bless her, you know, she was, she's a veteran. Uh, she has real bona fides on this issue and she's completely vilified and the DNC completely kneecapped her. Oh, during- her, yeah right during the 2020 elections you know so i think right now anyone with a different viewpoint is just fighting to get their voice out just mm-hmm. fighting yes and the the thing that you said about tucker you had me thinking about the, the democrats majority views is is one of the things that people try to malign him on now is the what they call like the great replacement theory right that he espouses that but if you actually look at kind of what he says his interests are in what those voters are, which is a lot of minorities and lower class um, working, like working people, blue collar people. And that's who it affects. And a lot of them are minorities. It's not about skin color, I don't think, but a lot of people try to paint. It's easy when you lob 
you know, ideas that white supremacists might like to each other. And then you just call everyone a white supremacist. Yeah, no, and that's very dangerous. You know, this thing where we just very casually throw words around like racist, mm -hmm. transphobe, uh, sexist, etc. Although, again, I think sexism seems to be okay now because transphobia is now people are more concerned about that. You can be a sexist if you want. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, you know, you banty these words about and it cuts off discussion. It's a great way to, you know, cut off discussion. Again, Tucker has me on to talk about Ukraine and, mm -hmm. oh, Tucker's a racist, so you shouldn't have done that. Well, really, that just ends the discussion. That's it then, right? Uh, and by the way, you know, it's racist, terms like racist are so casually used mm -hmm. that it appears everyone's a racist. So that would mean I can't talk to anyone because everyone's a racist either subconsciously or, right? I mean, <laughs> that's the prevailing view. So I shouldn't be able to talk to anybody. I mean, right? I mean, if you, yeah. if you take it to its logical, you know, extreme, uh -huh. We're just in, in the realm of complete absurdity. Well, it says something about this country that the worst thing you can be called is a racist or transphobe. Like, or, or people that were proudly racist would not be feared calling being called a racist because most people know they're not. And if you, you it's a lose-lose situation and you, you talk about that in your book as well. Yeah, there are avowed racists in the world mm -hmm. and they're bad people and they say I'm a racist, right? Yeah. You have people in the Ku Klux Klan, Nazis, etc. Uh, if someone tells you I'm not a racist, I think you have to at least initially take them at face value, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, and it was interesting when I met with Tucker Carlson, one of the first things he told me off camera was, you know, people say I'm a racist. He says, I'm not. I don't think I am. And, you know, if a guy tells you that, you got to at least take it at face value until it's proven not. or And at least it says, well, maybe this guy is redeemable, right? Because he doesn't want to be a racist or whatever. Um, so it's very strange. And, well, it, you know, it is interesting, you know, this thing about the shooting in Buffalo where, you know, the replacement theory came up and all. The thing people didn't want to talk about, particularly liberals, was that the guy who shot up those people in Buffalo was wearing a symbol of the Nazi Azov. I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we care about Tucker Carlson, who has some weird, vague ideas that we could maybe pigeonhole into a bad box. Here's a guy who's openly a Nazi, who's saying that he was inspired by the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, who at times the U.S. has been funding and training and we don't care about that. We're not going to talk about that because, whoa, that really hurts the narrative on Russia, Ukraine. So we're going to pretend that doesn't exist. And in fact, so here's a guy, I don't think he once said, by the way, maybe he did, and you can correct me. I don't think he once attributed his ideas to Tucker Carlson or no. Fox News, but he did to the Azov Battalion. So again, shouldn't we take him at face value? He's telling us what inspired him to do this. No one reported that, though. Right. I like to, I, I, that's one of the facts. I thought, you know, he was wearing one of those, uh, it's the red sun, right? Or was it the black sun? Yeah, the sun. Yeah, that sun symbol. And they showed, again, in the in the alternative press, they showed that up against the Azov. Again, that's that, Russian propaganda. Right. <laughs> yeah, if you tell the truth, it's Russian propaganda. Again, and that's another way to, to shut people up. You're a Russian asset. You're a Russian troll. Because why? Because you say there was 
a war going on for eight years in Ukraine, even before the Russian invasion. I'm sorry, it's true. And you, you can find articles in Newsweek and very mainstream press years back when it was okay to talk about that. Now you can't talk about it, you know? So, you know, we live in a world of lies and, you know, a hall of mirrors. And just to try to get any truth out is so difficult, you know? And that's why I appreciate being on a show like this, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with a lot of these things you're saying, and people would say, don't fall, you're falling for Russian propaganda. I mean, it's hard to know what's real in today's media. It's like, because they're both kind of in their own zones reporting, except on this war, it's very uniparty on this war, um, that they're funding uh, javelins and sending them from Raytheon and, and you know, a lot of a lot of people on the more conservative side, the more progressive side have problems with this lobbying that's going on, right, where the, the, the Secretary of Defense used to be on the I think he was on the board of uh, Raytheon, right? Right. And he'll probably go back to it once. He oh, I'm sure. The uh, the right. The War Department or the Defense Department. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Another another piece of uh, cancel culture that I find extremely interesting is um, the the way that um, some of these uh, professional sports teams or movies act. So the the NBA or the Olympics were in China where they've got slaves. The NBA is planning to play in the United Arab Emirates where being gay means you're killed. They're editing out scenes in Disney movies in these markets that don't um, condone homosexuality. But in the United States, rainbow flag uh, for, for June, everything that goes on, but they're not doing that in other countries. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects of living here is like we just continuously whip ourselves uh, without batting an eye when, when, when these companies are doing this in other, in other countries that don't, that don't align with Western values or liberal values. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's definitely, you know, yeah. Double standards. And, and I always say it's like the worst crimes are the ones that tend to be just overlooked. Right. So if someone says a word out of context, they're canceled. Meanwhile, if you support a war in Yemen, like Obama did and, and Biden does, that's killing literally millions of people or threatens to, Mm -hmm. you don't get canceled for that, right? And we don't look at that. And like you say, we don't look at the fact that, you know, the US supports groups and has like ISIS or whatever in Syria that are killing gays, right? Or the Azov battalion in Ukraine that was killing gays, right? Like they're not canceled, but if you misuse a word, you're canceled. I mean, it's very strange, right? It's really focusing on the minutia, on so-called microaggressions, when maybe you want to focus on macroaggressions, right? I mean, like, yeah. instead of nitpicking, why don't we look at systemic problems? And I think the reason people don't is it's too hard to do that. I think, as I write in my book, one of the reasons you have this cancel culture, which focuses on um, punishing individuals, is that it's easier to do that than to organize against the defense industry, right? Mm-hmm. To organize against war, to organize against terrible economic policies, right? That are leading to homelessness, et cetera. Those are difficult. Those you have to grind out that, you know, that, that's a lifelong work. You may never see results on, you know, people like to tear down a statue because it gives them immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. Right. I, you know, it doesn't help anyone, doesn't do anything. Right. But it 
it is satisfying, you know, and it's part of our convenience culture, I think, where we need immediate gratification from things we do. And so they focus on the microaggressions because you can do that. You can declare victory pretty easily there, you know, but it's a hollow victory. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. You also write your book, and this is one of the key points of debate I have with one of my more liberal friends, <laughs> but uh, you, write, you write in your book that the two parties are nearly identical, and certainly so in respect to their commitment to war and destruction, uh, which I completely agree with. Um, so what we what the discussion I have with some of my more liberal friends is that that's a false equivalency, that Trump is objectively worse, Republicans are objectively worse, they have sleazy tactics. So what made you kind of say that statement? And why do you think that it's it, that they are as if nearly identical in terms of how bad they are? Well, I mean, you just look at the facts. I mean, like, look at Obama, for example, St. Obama, right, who is a liberal icon. I mean, you can, he can do no wrong. Here's a guy who destroyed Libya based on lies, right? After that invasion, the, the nine month or so bombing of Libya that he helped initiate, uh, Libya is now a failed state. And there are slaves, black slaves being sold in public markets. Okay. Yep. That's a fact. Okay. Obama did that. Did Trump do something like that? No, he didn't. Obama started the war in Yemen in 2015, which again, may cost the lives of millions of people through starvation, disease. Most people don't even know about that war. They don't I even know about, about it on Joe Rogan. <laughs> right. right, or Tulsi again, right? Yeah. He started that war. Did Trump start a similar war? No, he did continue the Yemen war and he has to be criticized on that basis. He didn't start a war like that. The point is, if you look at what they do and not what they say, I don't care what any of these people say, because they tend to be liars. Mm -hmm. But even in, if they're not liars, I don't care what anyone says in life. I care what you do. OK, you look at the Vietnam War. That was a Democratic war. I mean, yeah, Nixon took it over, but it was the Democrats that started it, really got it going right under Kennedy and then Johnson. Uh, same thing with the Korean War. That was Truman's war, right? Um, yeah, the, uh, both the Iraq wars were Republican. For sure, though, they got a lot of Democratic support, mm -hmm. including Joe Biden, who was uh, in the Senate. He was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was a big part of pushing that war, right? And I think there were like one or two Democrats that even voted against the war, if I recall. So that was still bipartisan. Bush led it, but it was a bipartisan war. Both times, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan. Again, almost no dissenters mm -hmm. on those wars. One or two, maybe, in the entire Congress. Um, so if you look at facts, if you look at the wars and who did them, again, it's easily 50-50 Republican Democrat, if mm -hmm. not skewing more to the Democrats. Uh, World War One, deadly war. Wilson... Uh, promised he, we wouldn't get it get into it within six months he got us into it no one thinks that was a just war so i mean the point is it's so easy to see this i mean it, it's just facts mm -hmm. and and yeah trump said terrible things at times and and uh you know things against immigrants and 
but was his immigration policy any worse than Obama's? No, Obama deported more people than Trump. Biden has deported more Haitians than Trump. You know, so again, I don't care what people say. Mm-hmm. I care what they do. And now instead of putting kids in cages, Biden is putting them in what? Receptacles? I don't know. He has a different name. For yeah. They, they, that, that, uh, that Google search uh, went way down after, after he took office, although yeah. it's still happening. And I just think that this uh, partisan loyalty based on nothing, again, not based on principles, uh, but based on, again, more or less slogans of the two different parties makes no sense. I mean, one of my favorite uh, memes is the meme. I'm sure you've seen it. It's a, it's a big uh, bomber and it's bombing. Yes, yes. And it, it says Republicans on. It's just a black plane with black bombs. And then the other one says Democrats. It's a black plane, but it's got the the LBGT flag on it. It's got it says BLM on it. Yeah, it's like that Marine Corps helmet with the right. pride and it's dropping rainbow bombs. Well, this is exactly the problem. The, the, they have a discourse, different discourse, the two parties, different symbols or whatever, but they're both dropping bombs. Those bombs hurt as much if they're coming from Republicans as from woke Democrats. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And if we can't be honest about that, which I think many people cannot be, we're in deep trouble. Yes. Yeah. I, I know you have a limited amount of time. I have a couple of questions if you okay. have the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you just made me think of is, have you ever heard of Operation, I think it was called Northwoods? Yes, I have heard of it. You have to remind me what it was, though. Uh, I believe it's the one where they wanted JFK to kill a bunch of U.S. cruise ships with innocent people on it to provoke war. I think it was Cuba, maybe. Yeah, I think it was Cuba. And and he turned it down. Uh, The other thing that you talk talk about in your book that this I think this links to is uh, what you call the agent provocateurs at BLM protests. And then I also link that and I think about the uh, entrapment in in the governor uh, Whitmer, the Michigan case. Right. And I look at all these things going on and, you know, it was just revealed, uh, I forget how many millions or maybe it was billions of records that the FBI secretly had. Uh, I think it was the FBI uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I look at this and I'm like, this seems like a really great opportunity for them to increase domestic surveillance. Against yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, the irony here, we know that the FBI, for example, through what is it? Uh, con- I always can't. I can't pronounce it well. Con- Counter parole in the sixties and seventies infiltrated prog- mostly progressive anti-war groups to try to destroy them. And we know everything the FBI has done mostly against you know left-wing groups. And yet now many on the left see the FBI as their friend. Yep. Right. Because of RussiaGate, for example, which was completely you know a hoax. Rachel but- Maddow. Right. The FBI and the CIA were the good guys now, and that's how it's viewed. And so now, yeah, they don't care that the FBI set up these guys in Michigan because those guys were right wing. But still, we should be concerned that many terror or would be terrorist episodes are being set up by the FBI. I mean, that's just a fact. Mm -hmm whether it's from the right or from the left, we should be very skeptical of the FBI and the CIA in the government. I mean, in general, right? We should be very wary. 
They need right. a tax to thwart. Yeah, but we're not. And again, liberals now are seeing these folks as their saviors. And it's just, I don't know. We just live in stupid times. That's all I can say. We now, the onion has become like a real newspaper. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, where I think a lot of progressives, um, like such as yourself and liberals and, and some more conservative folks are, are coming together, um, are ways in which these are all just really large distractions from the class war um, going on. Um, and I think uh, you and I might have different solutions to that, but the issues that we agree upon are, are really important. And you know, another time we can talk about that. Um, but I, I know the time is uh, short and I, I really appreciate um, you coming on. Um, aside from your book, uh, Cancel Culture, which I, was that published in 2020, I believe, or 2019? Yeah, 2021. Okay, okay so yeah. have, you, have you published a book since then? I, I think it was the Foreign Interventionism one, or was that before that? That was just before that okay. one, the No More War book. Yes. Okay, so Cancel Culture is the most recent? Yes. Oh, or cancel this book, rather. Um, yes. Okay, so, so I, I very much encourage everyone to read that. And when is the next one coming out? That, you know, That'll come out in January, and that's about Nicaragua. Okay, amazing. Um, where can where can people follow and, and support your work? I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K. I'll note that in the interview. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's probably the best place to follow my daily activities. And uh, they can find my books on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, and they can go to skyhorsepublishing.com and find a list of my books and where to buy them. Dan, this is an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I appreciate it. David, it was a pleasure of mine. I hope to come on again.